So good morning, good evening, depending on where you are. Good late night, good early, early morning, depending on where you are in the world. As uh, you might see, I'm on vacation, but I couldn't resist coming in to join this, uh, the video today um, because it's on one of my favorite topics, cardiovascular inflammation and statins. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but I'll, um, people are going to ask where I am. I'm in, I live in South Carolina. I'm at the beach in South Carolina near Charleston, but I'm here with uh, my family of origin. And my niece said, Uncle Fordham, don't tell everybody where you are because they're all going to want to come down here and we won't be able to get a place anymore. So I promised her I wouldn't tell. But we're having a blast. Anyway, on today's show... You know, we don't use statins like other docs. Other docs use it anytime, anytime somebody gets over 50 or, or, or more. Uh, other docs will often use statins anytime an LDL gets over 70. And we don't use it for either of those purposes. We only use it if you are a cardiovascular patient. Now, how do we define that? If you have plaque. If you have plaque in your arteries then you're no longer a primary prevention patient. You're a secondary prevention patient. That creates a whole new set of risks. I, by the way, am a secondary uh, cardiovascular prevention patient. Even though I was a poster boy for um, lifestyle, you know, in my late 50s, early 60s, we discovered I had insulin resistance, and then full-blown uh, diabetes. And it wasn't because I was heavy. My BMI was in the low 20s, always has been. It was because I was getting old. As they say, getting old is not for sissies. So <clears throat> we have some patients who don't have this problem at all, even though they've reached the 60s and 70s, the eighth decade of life. Aging is by far the biggest driver of this problem. Other drivers uh, for cardiovascular inflammation include other inflammatory diseases, the classic one being rheumatoid arthritis. The most common arthritis problem that we have um, among our patients is psoriatic arthritis. So those inflammatory diseases, actually, most people don't know this because diabetes is so much more common. But those inflammatory diseases are um, as big a risk for, for cardiovascular disease as, um, as diabetes. Now, let me get back to the topic. Again, we're getting big enough to where I'm hearing, uh, I had a cousin the other day said, I asked my doctor about you and my doctor said, oh, yeah, he rolled his eyes and he said, yes, I've heard of him. He causes me pain uh, because patients bring take our stuff into doctors. One of the more common challenges they get is, oh, this um, this thing about giving statins for cardiovascular inflammation. Show me the data. Show me the evidence. And so I'm very excited. We get that request a lot. For those of you who've made it, and many of you have, where is the evidence? We've got uh, even the top levels of evidence uh, on that specific item. A meta-analysis today showing that statins 
low-dose statins have an impact. They decrease cardiovascular inflammation. So we'll talk about that a little bit today. And we'll also, as usual, cover some issues in terms of that and lifestyle-related issues. Um, but before we do our long content, we've always got uh, we've started adding shorts, gosh, a couple of years ago. Today, the shorts will be on OGTT, the oral glucose tolerance test and the insulin and insulin resistance. You know, we've been covering a series, including a couple of long topics on um, the craft book, Diabetes Epidemic and You. And he made the, you know, he had the sarcastic subtitle, Should You Be Worried About Diabetes? And it said, no, only if you want to live. And we would agree with that. Maybe not the sarcasm. We're sarcastic as well. But um, bottom line is that to me is the most important test for looking at your how to manage your life and how to um, increase your longevity, how to rectangularize your lifespan. So we'll be talking about that in the five stages that Kraft described on response to an oral glucose tolerance test or the insulin survey. <coughs> we've got a, uh, on the second one, we've got a uh, viewer that has talked about LP little a. Now his perspective was, he, he covered an article which talked about LP little a is not the, doesn't cause the damage. It is the fireman, not the arson. And we'll cover a little bit of, about that article, and we'll also discuss our reactions to it. We think we, we've got some good points there, but we also think there are, other, there are other good points on the other side of that LP little aid debate. And people, I've covered, um, because of our, our uh, Medicare program and the fact that we're, we've gone into primary care, we get a lot of folks asking about non-cardiovascular related things. Well, so we covered men's health. We started a series on that. And when you think about it, uh, erectile dysfunction is not unrelated to cardiovascular disease. In fact, in men uh, 40 years and older, it is very, very much related to cardiovascular disease. As you'll see in our content, our shorts for today, Erectile dysfunction is not only uh, associated with insulin resistance, prediabetes. It's also associated with everything that insulin resistance and prediabetes is, is associated with. Aging, depression, cardiovascular disease. So we'll cover some information on that as well. If you're new to the channel, um, Here's the sort of things that you find. We're basically helping people understand the things that are going to shorten your life or disable you. Uh, so that has to do with a lot of cardiovascular disease stuff. And unfortunately, the major cause of cardiovascular disease is something that the evidence shows your typical doctor does not understand. Two-thirds of doctors, primary care doctors, cardiologists, family practitioners, internists do not know how to make a diagnosis of insulin resistance, prediabetes. If they don't know how to make a diagnosis on it, how can they know how to manage it? 
they don't. The evidence is clear about that as well. So we have a lot of information on uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, prediabetes. Uh, we covered last week the oral cardiovascular connection. Uh, we had a, a dentist on and um, somebody who works with the dentist who's doing uh, CIMTs. And um, it's an interesting thing. There's been a debate for over 50 years about this connection. People that have gum disease tend to have cardiovascular disease. It's like, it's so obvious. The same thing is the number one cause for both insulin resistance. So we got a good, a good uh, video on that last week. Uh, as I mentioned before, we've had a series where we've been covering Kraft and his book on should you be tested for diabetes? And the answer is yes. So another component on the diabetes topic, low carb diet. What does that do for risk in terms of diabetes? And we've got a thousand other videos out there, uh, all focusing on cardiovascular disease, prevention, colon cancer, things that, uh, that you need to know about. So, Jesus, why don't you take the rest of the intro and I'll go on mute. I'm starting to get some lawn care noise in the background. And I'm jealous of that. Uh, so you should I, be. I, I, I think you just gave too much about your location. <laughs> you didn't say where, but a Google, a Google search can solve that. And just, just to compliment your intro, we had Dr. Feldberg, Ariana Feldberg, who, who worked uh, with thank us. You. And, and we talked about also in the low-carb diet, a lot of people saying, hey, should you carb load before an OGTT or not? And that we had a plenty of discussion that was also brought by a viewer. So we appreciate that, uh, Rick Folia. So uh, just a reminder and, and just to say hi and, and hello to everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, if, you're, if you're seeing the show on YouTube or Rumble, thank you so much for being here. We also have a locals uh, platform where you can get access to other exclusive content. This is something that was brought up to us as well. Uh, there is an, a button on YouTube uh, just right to the subscribe button that says join. So if you're going to the channel, that's going to help us a lot. And we also have, have been stating that when we get to the questions and answers, we're going to start answering questions first from people who are part of the YouTube uh, network, so to say. If you join to the channel, we do have an icon here that says that you are a member and we're going to address your questions first, as well if you hit us with a super chat, of course. Um, the book that is, is not so new already, it's a really, really established book, really easy to read, and it's going to give you the answers that you're looking for in regards to um, how to find and identify cardiovascular plaque and why a stress test are not a way to do so. Uh, stress tests are really good if you're looking to see how good is your uh, overall performance, especially if you are an athlete, but they're not going to tell you if you're going to have a heart attack or not. So... Uh, Word I have asked uh, that we change, take that new out of there. I'm going to ask again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll remind the guys as well. Um, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a good read. Uh, Dr. Bruce likes to say that it's a good way to get you to sleep. But I don't think, I don't think that's the case. Um, as, as we know, uh, if you have traditional Medicare, no Medicare advantage, just traditional Medicare for now, 
we have had a blast on developing this new service for people. It's been really good for people to have access to talk to Dr. Brewer directly about their own specific cases. So uh, take a look at our website, call us, if Rafi, if you can put the phone number of the practice over there, 859-721-1414. If you have traditional Medicare, want to have an opinion, a medical advice from Dr. Brewer, go ahead and call us. We'll be happy to put you in the waiting list to, to see Dr. Brewer under the Medicare umbrella. Uh, we also have another channel, the new the um, uh, Doctors Prevention Network. Uh, a lot of people ask, hey, where can I find a doctor that thinks and has the same ideas that Dr. Brewer? We're working on that. It's going to take a couple of months to get it developed uh, 100%, but that's that's another uh, that's another project from uh, for us, and uh, we are growing uh, quicker and bigger than we thought we were, we were going to be. So... Uh, you can refer your physician to that if, if if the physician is willing to, because if your physician rolls their eyes when you uh, just rolls their eyes when you talk about Dr. Brewer, probably is not going to be interested in this. Uh, as you know, supplement industry is not as regulated as uh, prescription medications, so we are working with full scripts who have a system to ensure that supplements are as good quality as possible. You can go ahead and take a look at them. We have a couple of protocols of some of the supplements that Dr. Rue recommends, if that's something you will have interest in them too. Uh, we just had feedback that berberine, bergamot are some of the most popular supplements out there, and you can get some um, quality options there on full scripts. Uh, do you want to start addressing the OGTT? Yes. And in fact, the timing was perfect. That leaf blower just went off. So as uh, you may remember, Jesus uh, covered some slides in our last uh, long form content on the book, um, The Diabetes Epidemic and You by Joseph Kraft. One of the things he's done, and I asked him to include this uh, slide today. So one of the things Kraft has done, it, they did thousands of their insulin survey. And their insulin survey is basically an old standard OGTT, oral glucose tolerance test. And in fact, we call it the OGTT slash IR because it shows the insulin response as well. Um, <clears throat> so if you look at the details on this, you get a really good understanding of the basics, the most common patterns that you see if you do these on a pop large populations of people. The first one is normal, pattern one. So you add the glucose, uh, you take the, uh, the glucose value and the uh, insulin value. Glucose needs to be, uh, is, uh, in an optimum person uh, or a person with optimum health, insulin health or, car or um, carbohydrate health. Easy for me to say, huh? Anyway, um, fasting will be like 80 for glucose and five or less for insulin. Within half an hour, it'll go up to about 120 and that will be the peak for glucose. Um, insulin can go up 50 to 80. It can go up as high as 80. Um, then at one hour, the glucose is down to 100, the insulin's down to 40s. At two hours, it's 
again, a hundred and uh, less than 40. And if you continue to follow it for three and four hours, you see a continued decline. Now, pattern two is what we call a delayed insulin response. And what you see is that um, people still should have that low fasting glucose. And that's what throws most doctors. Most um, doctors think they're actually using um, A1C. A1, they're not. If you look at the evidence, most insulin resistance is picked up on a, a fasting glucose level that's too high. So speaking of that, look through the rest of the patterns and look to see at what point your fasting glucose is too high. It's not pattern one. It's not pattern two. It's not pattern 3A. It's not until you get to patterns 3B, 4, and 5 very advanced insulin resistance that you actually start to see a change in the fasting glucose. Big problem. That's one of the reasons why most insulin resistance and even diabetes is missed in modern medicine. Back to pattern two, it's a delayed insulin response. So here's what happens. Uh, our pancreas actually stores insulin. So, um, in the normal pattern, you see you get a quick response, half an hour it shoots up, then the pancreas releases that stored insulin and it gets it back down. Not so much in, a, in pattern two. That's where people are starting to get some resistance to insulin. Now, one of the more common things that you'll see in a pattern two is that the basal insulin has elevated. It's gone up to 10, 15, even 20. And because it's taking that much insulin to keep a low glucose level, the pancreas doesn't get the opportunity to store insulin. So you lose that second, uh, you lose that first phase release of stored insulin. Well, look what happens. Then that forces the pancreas to get the, to manage insulin by using, um, I mean, manage glucose by using insulin itself, insulin that it's making a fresh, not stored insulin. So what happens? That second hour goes up, be, or that second half hour goes up beyond 120 into the 140s, 160s, or even higher. And then once you've uh, gotten that peak insulin of 60 to 80, then it starts bringing it back down. So as you see, let me just ask you, we've got a lawnmower out there. Can you hear it? Yes. Uh, we can hear some noise, but I can, I'll, at least I can hear you correctly. I'll tell you what. Let me go on mute, and why don't you take over? And I'll, Actually, I think we're going to be okay. So then <clears throat> you begin to watch this pattern, and patterns 3A, 3B, uh, and 4 3A and 3B are basically where you are getting a response to your insulin. It's just taking a lot longer and more insulin to do it. So uh, on pattern 3A, for example, you're still climbing at two hours. You don't peak until two hours. And then your insulin peaks and your glucose peaks. After that two hours in the three-hour period, it start, both of them start to come back down. 3B further delay on the insulin response. So the glucose value now 
is climbing on up beyond uh, 100, 120, 150, 200. Now we're getting up to like 250. And the insulin is not peaking until the third hour. At that point, you're finally getting the management of this problem. Pattern four is an interesting twist in the pattern. What it is showing is that you've got a significant jump in the amount of insulin required for uh, these receptors to respond. As you see, at, uh, they're getting an early response on the insulin. And we see this a lot, especially with both. <coughs> it's an interesting thing. You see it a lot with people with early insulin response because they haven't, quote, worn out their, their pancreas yet. You also see that in some folks with more of a late insulin response. The early is associated with this higher insulin values, and the late is associated more with the higher glucose values. But either way, you look at it and you see insulin is not peaking until two hours, and we're getting levels like 200 and 250 on the insulin level. In fact, as in this one, the insulin level itself is higher than the glucose level. And we've got patients whose uh, numbers look very much like this. Uh, in fact, I, I'm reminded of a, a, one of our patients, female uh, in her late 50s, early 60s, had a case of long COVID. She, with that case of long COVID, she was about like pattern two. She was getting up 140s, 160s, 180s in terms of her glucose values and her insulin values were not that bad. They were a little bit higher than 80, but they were not that bad. She had the case of long COVID. Then all of a sudden, over that six-month period, her, she, her insulin resistance increased so much that she was now getting insulin values up like 200, 150, 200, 250. So she went from a pattern two into a pattern four. And we, this is the sort of things that we see in our cases. Um, uh, as you might guess, Dr. Kraft was not making these up. He was looking at these patterns in the testing that were, was being done in his lab in the hospital at Chicago. Pattern five is another interesting pattern. So what's happening with pattern five is you're, that's, this is what uh, doctors mean when they say your pancreas is worn out. It's just not making insulin anymore. You've been in this pattern four so long that your pancreas is just, it is, it's not making insulin so much. So even though you get these high glucose patterns going up to 250, 300, and I think John Lorscheider shared his went up to 350 and 400. But then, even though you get these very high glucose levels, you get these insulin levels that just really never get up to even 50. So what that, and we've got plenty of patients like that too. And what that is, is your, again, your pancreas has been overworked. It's been in pattern four for an, enough months or years to where, it's just not making stuff, uh, insulin so much anymore. So I, I've covered this in the past. Last time, I think it was a couple of years ago, people responded very, very well because it gives you a critical glimpse inside our world. When, patients, when people come in to be our patients, 
This is one of the key things that we'll do in the very beginning and classify their glucose metabolism. So as you'll hear us talk quite a bit about carbohydrate metabolism and the health associated with that carbohydrate metabolism, this is exactly what we're talking about. Jesus, any comments before we go on? And the, the thing that I will mention is just, just so everybody is on the same page, uh, if you see the graphs, blue line, insulin, purple line, glucose, and pattern five has been a discussion because the other, the other people where you see that is people who is type one diabetic, so they don't produce insulin because of genetic issues. Um, we, we also see that, and that was the main point of discussion for the last series on this, people who are on low-carb diet for a few years, then they get an OGTT, and they get similar responses to pattern five. But you have two types of, of people, the, the persons who have low levels of glucose despite this, and the people who have high levels of glucose on the OGTT with low insulin response. And that's the that's the that's the... The idea behind, hey, maybe I should eat some carbs beforehand because my pancreas forgot how to make insulin because I don't eat that uh, so much, too much carbs. So we were we were discussing that because the evidence is not there yet. Um, and even even Kraft on on his book mentioned that like, hey, people on low carb can have a fake diagnosis of diabetes just because of that. And just so you just so you, you can remember as a viewer, the pancreas works really tight with the liver. And the liver is another place where insulin gets uh, storaged. So it's not like you're ever going to, to stop having insulin if your pancreas is healthy. Every time you eat some carbs, the pancreas is producing insulin. And the insulin that you're not using is going to be a storage on the liver. And the liver uses that to save glucose or produce glucose from, from, from within. So you're bringing up a really good point. Uh, the first, one, The second one was that continued debate about whether or not to carb load and the assumption that your your pancreas forgets to make how to make insulin uh if you don't if you never stimulate it i'm a skeptic on that side i i'm i'm i fall on the skeptic side of that argument because everything i've seen per, both personally and in terms of uh research evidence would indicate your pancreas does not forget how to make insulin but um, there's still a component of people that feel that way. You know, it, I'm old enough it, and I'm, I'm old as dirt. I've been doing this for over 30 years. I'll never say never. Yeah. And, and there's not, there's not enough research. If you see there research really about insulin resistant, they use home IR, IR, which is based on fasting insulin and fasting glucose. And even Kraft's mentioned that fasting insulin, fasting glucose is not enough. Or they use insulin clamps. And uh, those do, do not provide the information that you see on these graphs. There's, there's just so few uh, studies that are using OGTT and Kraft insulin survey or insulin response. The other thing, the first thing that you brought up is the fact that this looks like a type 1 diabetic response as well. I didn't mention that, and it's a great point. And it brings up the point that type 1 diabetes is very, very different from type 2. Uh, Jesus mentioned a genetic predisposition. It, there appears to be, a, uh, again, an inflammatory uh, cause. Uh, some people will have a 
uh, an antibody or inflammation response to a virus or another disease. That's the theory. And their own immune response cross-reacts with proteins in the pancreas, causing the pancreas to no longer be able to make insulin. Um, That happens. And again, that's type 1 diabetes. Now, you also see that, as I said, with people that have very significant long-term type 2 diabetes. With type 2 diabetes, your insulin receptors don't respond to insulin. Therefore, you're insulin resistant. Type 1 diabetes is not insulin resistance. It's the fact that you cannot make insulin anymore. So, again, this is one of my favorite slides, one of my favorite sets of images, and you can see why. It's the core of what we do. Anything else? Patterns 2 to 4, that's insulin resistance right there. And yeah. even Kraft, Dr. Kraft advocated to consider if you only have insulin response, to consider that as di- diagnosis of diabetes, even without levels of blood sugar. And if you have an OGTT without insulin response, that's only half of the picture. So that, that's part of the discussion. And this is something that you won't get on your traditional primary care office because they will only see at fasting glucose and A1C. And those do not provide all this information as you see here. Thank you so much for that slide, Jesus. Again, it's core to what we do. Now, why don't you talk about, uh, again, a few weeks ago, one of our viewers brought up this article by Dr. Keefe, or that was mentioned by Dr. Keefe. It's uh, an article by, it looks like a Japanese uh, group. Yeah. Yeah, a Japanese research group. And it has to do with LP little a. At the end of the day, it speaks to this debate. Is LP little a the arson or the fire department? Take it away, Jesus. Yeah. So as you know, LP little a is a subparticle of other lipoproteins, such as ApoB. And this discussion on, we're, we're far away from that discussion of saying high cholesterol, that's the bad thing. So we're far away from that. And we are far away also from mentioning that ApoB itself is a risk factor. And that's when LP little a comes in place. People ha- that had a normal stress test, then had a heart attack, and the only risk factor identified was high LP little a. So that's when we just start to think, what's the role for little LP little a? Can you hear me there? I could, but I wanted to interrupt now that I have. Sure. And uh, many of us know who the classic uh, example was. Now I just forgot it. Had a senior moment. Oh, Bob Harper. Bob Harper. Bob Harper was the, in his early 50s, he was the trainer, the physical trainer on the show, The Biggest Loser. He was doing. He was in his own class uh, for uh, physical training. I think it was a CrossFit track class. And he had chest pain, got really dizzy, sat down on the floor, and it turned out he'd had a heart attack. Everybody reacted because they said, "Oh my gosh! If if Bob Harper, Robert Harper, had a heart attack, as good a shape as he's in, we're all doomed." Well, <laughs> we're not all doomed. Uh, well, you can take over 90%, 95% of this risk off the table. He came out a week later and he said, yep, we know what did it. I inherited it. 
it was LP little a and my mom's got it too. So thank you for the allowing the interruption. Sure. So uh, Dr. Keefe mentioned, he sent us an email and he said, well, on one, on one stream, I asked Dr. Brewer about this and Dr. Brewer challenged and said, well, I, I will need to see the evidence that LPDLA is more uh, fireman that, rather than an arson. And Dr. Keefe sent us this article and don't, don't get... Um, uh, don't get distracted because it's an article from 1997. It's, it's still a really good article. Article I read it. I read it from top to bottom, and it's good research. So in this study, researchers examined examined uh, examined 50 samples of inflamed tissues. They used some antibodies. This is just the way that you identify different particles within a tissue. And this were tissue that was wounded, was inflamed, that it has a, a damage, an injury. And they saw different types of substances dealing with that. And what is remarkable is to identify that LP little a was present only when the tissue was already damaged. So, and it was mostly present when the tissue was starting to heal. And they identified that there's a fibrous cap that gets developed in some injuries. And only when that fibrous cap was present, LP little a was present above that fibrous cap like to prevent that the damage and inflammation was present outside the wound that uh, prevented that the process was uh, being uh, expanded so to say within the tissue and just because they didn't find LP little a on normal tissue and they find LP little a on healing tissue they I su they are suggesting that LP little a is a healing factor one thing that is, was kind of hidden within the article and they just mentioned once was that LP little a showed to prevent fibrinolysis. Easy for you to say, fibrinolysis. Yeah, fibrinolysis. So what does that mean? Fibrinolysis is basically the process of breaking clots, separating plas plasma plat platelets that produce a clot. So LP little, LP little, LP little A prevented that, meaning LP little A can cause clots or can be involved in clot production. That's the only factor activity of LP little A that doesn't match the hypothesis and conclusion from this research. And just because LP little A is not on healthy tissue and only in inflamed tissue, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a role in creating that. So I'm... Um, we are leaning towards saying that LP little a is a fireman. But even with this research, I don't think we are 100% sure. So if I could interject again, you know, to your point about leaning toward the fireman model. Um, yes, uh, I've, I, I tend to lean. For those who don't know this, LP little a is simply a genetic variation of ApoB. And ApoB is the protein that makes LDL. So I really lean more towards LDL being a, a fireman rather than the arsonist, with some exceptions, uh, especially like FH, significant FH. So why would I not think that LP little a is also uh, the fireman? There's some evidence that LP, you know, LP little a, when you look molecular at the molecular structure, LP little a has these little, a little hook 
coming off of it that's made of things called Kringle repeats. Yes, Kris Kringle, like Santa Claus. Uh, evidently, there was a Kringle that discovered these or, or described them. And so the potential is on a molecular basis, those Kringle, that hook made from Kringle repeats could actually be creating some hook or some inflammation that way. The other piece of evidence that would indicate maybe the arson would be the fact that um, LP little a tends to have an increased affinity for oxidized uh, cholesterol. So both of those would say, well, maybe it's actually the arsonist. I think both of those are fairly weak. And um, I think the point that Jesus brings up today that maybe it actually uh, stops or slows down or inhibits fibrinolysis. Uh, that may be more of a, of a, uh, ev a stronger evidence that it's the arson than any of them. But the bottom line is, as you can see, it's all still theory. Um, there is no significant evidence to conclusively prove arson or fire department yet. You going to cover this one or me? Uh, if, if, if you want, I, I can start and to compliment. So we are going to start, we're, we're going to keep talking about men's health we already had a long short form content about this and we had a guest who described us he had some Pyrenees disease which is a deformation of the penis because of fibrous cap near the base and how he improved that with prolonged fasting a really interesting show if you want to go ahead and take a look at that but just as a reminder erectile dysfunction has to do with metabolic disease and with diabetes more than you might think Around 10% of men aged between 40 and 70 have a severe or complete ED problem, and 25% will have a moderate or intermittent ED issue. And the biggest risk factors, believe it or not, diabetes, insulin resistance, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and depression. And the, the last three of those also, also really, really tightly connected to insulin resistance. Other causes include radiation treatment, prostate cancer, spinal cord injuries, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis. Smoking, alcohol, lack of exercise, all of that matters. And just this is a short, short review on the key concepts of erectile dysfunction. Medications play a role, of course, those help. And uh, as, we as I mentioned, recently we hosted a viewer that improved his issue with prolonged fasting, inducing autophagy on the cells, help, uh, help him uh, solve his issue with Pyrenees disease and erectile dysfunction. Um, lifestyle is a it's critical for that. And we're going to cover more, more about this. As you know, some people, the only symptom they have that makes us think that they have an insulin resistance issue is rectal dysfunction. So it can be the first red alarm that your body's saying, telling you that you are not metabolizing carbs as you need to. And why is this connected? Diabetes, insulin resistance affects nerves and affects arterial walls. And what do you need to achieve a good erection? Blood flow with healthy artery walls and a good nerve system that is conducting the messaging from the brain. So diabetes impairs all of that. So as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, you might say, well, 
uh, men's health, uh, like erectile dysfunction, is a is part of our primary care activities. But that would be a little bit naive in terms of uh, the relationship between uh, erectile dysfunction and cardiovascular health. If you if you look at this um, second bullet on the slide, the biggest risk factors are diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance. Well, you know, that's core to our channel. Hypertension, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease. And what most people don't know is that depression is a major comorbidity for all types of insulin resistance. So ED is a cardiovascular issue as well, in case you didn't know it. Anything else about ED, erectile dysfunction? We're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk more about other issues regarding men's health. So stay put for those topics if you're interested in that, of course. I'll make another comment as well. So as we've started the men's health uh, series, uh, I've shared with folks the um, some of the advantages of what Cialis five, or uh, Tadalafil, five milligrams per day over the... Um, you know, just the once uh, single episodes of Viagra and um, the, evidently people were watching because a lot of folks have uh, have started making that request. We probably got a couple of dozen so far. Uh, and again, I think it's uh, it's got a couple of different uh, significant advantages. The first is uh, it helps with uh benign prosthetic uh, discomfort, pain. It also helps in terms of your sex life because you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to plan for each, uh, each event. Anything else? Sex life is a great way to exercise as well. Absolutely. I, I, that, that can be a good, uh, you can get a couple of hit uh, intervals with that. And that's right. No Just better saying. type of interval training. Just saying. At least in terms of mental health. So yeah. I'll tell you what, uh, we're, prob we're probably going far enough on that for today. Uh, we still haven't reached our major topic, statins and cardiovascular risk. That's right. The connection. Uh, this topic isn't quite as much fun as uh, using sex for high intensity interval training, but it's a topic that's really uh, popular among our viewers. They come in a lot and they say, I took your information to my doc. He challenged it. He said, I don't believe this stuff about statins and inflammation. Show me the evidence. Okay. Jesus, take it away. So, and, and we, we appreciate your patience with us. Uh, we were talking about short topics and we just get excited with the stuff that we're presenting. So, uh, sorry about that, but I hope this is useful information. I'm pretty sure it is. So statins have been used a lot to pro as protective agents against cardiovascular disease. It is usually thought that by decreasing LDL with high doses of statins, you can decrease the risk of heart attack and stroke. And granted, even with high doses of statins, you can impact the root causes. It's like doing the right stuff uh, for, the wrong, for the wrong reasons. And there's plenty of evidence that supports the idea that actually statins have a key role in inflammation, therefore decreasing the risk of cardiovascular events. But having a show with 30, 50 studies separate and dissecting each and one of them. It's going to take a long time. So we're basically presenting you the work from people who already did that for us. 
They already reviewed all of this data and we're summarizing that on the key concept. And this is, the first one is this review from 2017. And they, they listed for us eight of the top notch article, the most important articles that explore the impact that statins have on cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular events. So as you know already, if you have followed this channel for a long time, plaque formation involves inflammatory process, addition of some cells into the artery wall, damage to the glycocalyx, movement and transfer from cholesterol particles within uh, below, below the cell, breaking of that artery wall and producing a clot. So statins properties involve pleiotropic effects. And Dr. Brewer likes a lot to explain what pleiotropic effects mean. So I'm going to leave that part to Dr. Brewer, and then I will continue. I don't want to steal your thunder. Okay. Well, it's not much thunder, but it's, you know, <clears throat> there's some people. I was listening to a video uh, the other day on Diary of a CEO, and the fellow was talking about having a, uh, a photographic memory my memory is exactly the opposite. If I can't figure out a mechanism, I can't remember it. I just can't. Now, <clears throat> so pleiotropic, it's based on a, uh, the term pleo, and I, and I guess that's Greek, but I'm not sure. Yes, it is. The way to is, is that right? Yeah. So the way to remember that is the Pleiades. If, uh, even if you're not an astronomer, and I'm not, you can sometimes remember that the Pleiades are the seven sisters. So it's a whole lot of sisters. It's extra sisters. And um, pleiotropic, that's exactly what that means. It's an extra type of mechanism. The standard mechanism that everybody thinks of for statins is, that oh, they lower cholesterol. That's not what we use it for. We use it for a pleiotropic or an extra, a different kind of mechanism. So thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, as the pleiotropic effects, even if it is based on the seven sisters, uh, if you go ahead and look at that constellation, it's over 3,000 stars. And it's not 3,000 effects, but uh, it's, it's more than seven. So That's a lot of stars. Yeah, it is. It's it's really interesting story if you go deep onto that and how Orion was in the chase of those seven sisters and they get helped by by Zeus after defeating Atlas to get protected from Orion. It's a it's well, a neat story. You stole my thunder after all. <laughs> it's 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 good to put some pop culture and Greek references from time to time, right? So very impressive. Statins can inhibit cell migration to the artery wall, decrease the expression of inflammatory particles and prevent its release. And this is the key concept when we talk about pleiotropic effects. Even though the mechanism is within one enzyme on the body, it has different processes that affects inflammation. And we're going to show you those on the next slide. So different studies have shown the impact of the status on cardiovascular prevention. And see the studies right to, the, to, uh, to your right side of the screen. Uh, some of them... Uh, involved simvastatin. A lot of them involved Lipitor or atorvastatin. Uh, some of them involved probastatin. And one of the more important ones, the Jupiter trial, involved rosvastatin. And if you go ahead and see the risk ratio or, or uh, risk hazard risk ratio, if you see on some of them, it's 0 0.66, 0 0.78, 0 0.85. The closer to one, 
the less the effect. So see the Jupiter trial, the, the, the risk radio or, uh, or the hazard radio is 0.56. So it means it has a bigger effect than the other statins. So that's, that's why uh, we do lean more on choosing Crest or Rosobastatin on low doses rather than the other ones. The other thing that this is telling you, some of those studies used high dose statins. So even high dose statins seem like the inflammation. It's just that the, some of the researchers didn't see that going on. They, they search and they target to decrease LDL. So you both decrease LDL and decrease inflammation, decrease cardiovascular risk with the perk of having higher side effects. And that's one of the major things that keep people out of wanting to take statins because they say, I'm going to have 40, 80 milligrams of Lipitor. I'm going to have body, body pains. My liver and going to go through the roof. I'm going to have headaches. And they don't want to just statins because of that. But what the Jupiter trial is telling you, you need higher doses. So I, it, I've got a lawnmower coming by, but hopefully it's, it's going to pass on through. Now, you also bring up this relative risk. And David Diamond talks about this. Um, Ken Berry, a lot of the folks that are like the, the anti-statin guys. And they got the numbers a little bit wrong, uh, or at least the concept a little bit wrong. So what they're saying is, you know, out of 100 people, if I only get, um, let's say we've got 100 people, let's say we've got four with uh, cardiovascular disease, and I'm only decreasing my risk by 50%. So therefore, I'm going from a risk of 4% to a risk of 2%. Uh, it's, they're confusing the denominator. The uh, folks at, at Hopkins, you know, that's what we call medicine at Hopkins. We called it denominator medicine because so many, even, even other researchers confuse the denominator. When I have, a, so somebody asked me to do, uh, uh, like many people, he was convinced by David Diamond's presentation on relative risk. And he said, with all of this risk and pain and side effects that Jesus just described, I'm only decreasing my um, probability of cardiovascular events by 2% because of that denominator. Again, wrong denominator. That denominator includes 15-year-old girls who don't have any risk for cardiovascular disease. When you're a patient, a cardiovascular disease patient, you don't consider yourself and compare your risk to a 15-year-old. You're comparing your risk to other people that have plaque. And that's what we're talking about. And you're saying and that's what this is saying. The relative risk is I cut my risk of, once I have plaque, I cut my risk of having a heart attack by 50%. That's significant. That's the correct interpretation of the denominator. And I know it's a very hotly debated item. I know it's casting a little bit of shade on uh, David Diamond and Ken Berry and the other guys that I mentioned. But uh, 
the bottom line is I have all the respect and I have a lot of respect for those guys. I have a lot of respect for the fact that they've saved a lot of lives, probably more than, than I have, uh, at least in Ken Berry's perspective, because he's got such a larger audience. But the bottom line is if the information's wrong, the information's wrong. Relative risk does matter. It's you can't just put it aside and say, well, compared to a 15 year old, uh, I'm only decreasing my risk 2%. That's not the correct interpretation. Pardon me for going on a rant, but I had to. I'll agree with, with, and in fact, I did a, I did a video, which was a direct response to uh, David Diamond's STEM, you know, science, technology, education videos, uh, STEM 41, I think. And we've got it in up uh, out there for the public. And I went through each of his points and agreed with every one of them until you got to that one. And that is, again, the correct interpretation of relative risk. Thank you for being patient with my rant. No, that, that that's critical information. And it's, I, I think one of the core things to remember here is we are not on the opposite sides of the spectrum. We're not saying, hey, you need you always need a statins. You always need that. You need high doses. You need to endure the pain of taking statins. We're, we're not saying that. And we're not saying the statins don't work. The statins have a role. And there is a specific place and moment in time when statins are going to help. That's what we are addressing right now. And this is the slide that we were talking about when we mentioned the pleiotropic effects. So it's not 3,000, but it's more than seven. And as you see, statins have a role in inflammation, immunomodulation, meaning how statins can change the patterns and behaviors of immune cells that are promoting inflammation, decreasing the, the translocation or transitosis or movement from cells within the blood to the lining of the artery wall and producing inflammation, involving changing the cellular mechanisms of communication, decreasing uh, levels of CRP, increasing levels of nitric oxide, decreasing the other inflammation markers that are within, stabilizing, stabilizing plaque by decreasing inflammatory cells infiltrates, increasing the activity of macrophage, macrophage which are cells that bite everything that's wrong there, but that can destroy part of the, the cell wall as well. Improving collagen synthesis, uh, promoting that the, the, the glycocalyx and the wall to heal itself. Um, decreasing LDL oxidation, increasing the uh, scavenging or taking out oxygen-free radicals that produce inflammation as well producing the artery wall to create more cells to heal itself, decreasing platelet aggregation. A lot of stuff more than just LDL. And this is the stuff that is still on research and that we have seen all the stuff on in vitro and in vivo studies, meaning on a Petri dish and in mice as well. Uh, you're on mute, Doc. You're pausing. You know I'm going to jump in with comments, right? Yes. I'm getting better at that. That's right. <laughs> you can see it on my face. So uh, Jesus mentioned macrocytes um, and monocyte 
activation. Macrocytes and monocytes are part of the same family of immune cells. And we actually test for activity for that. If you uh, have been a patient of ours, you know that one of the things we test for is LPPLA2. It's also called plaque 2 PLAC2 is an enzyme that is released by monocytes and or macrocytes when they come in contact with foreign body and become activated by cytokines. So we can actually measure the uh, level of immune activity that, uh, that's going on uh, in your bloodstream against plaque. There's another test in the cardiovascular inflammation panel that's very similar. It's called MPO, myeloperoxidase. Myeloperoxidase is the same thing. It's the enzyme not made by monocytes or macrocytes. It's the enzyme made by what we call polymorphs or neutrophils, another line of inflammatory cells. So hopefully that will help people connect the dots with our series on cardiovascular inflammation and how to test for it. And inflammation is a complex process from which we know about a lot about what we still don't know a lot about. So it's, it's we, in that space. We know enough about the research to have done a what? What is that? About a two hour course? Yeah. That's one of our core courses. And if you have, usually we offer it for what, 20, 30, 40 bucks. And yeah. if you have problems affording it, let us know. We'll see if we can figure out a way to just get it to you for free. The goal is to help you understand what less than 5% of doctors understand, and that is uh, cardiovascular risk is much more associated with this process of inflammation uh, in the arteries. Now, one of the, it's got a lot of pictures in it, a lot of photomicrographs where it's showing these inflammatory cells that I described, monocytes, macrocytes, neutrophils, polymorphs, all in there, uh, releasing those enzymes, releasing LPPLA2, releasing MPO, and actually congregating around plaque in the artery wall. Once you start seeing a few of those pictures, you know, you may say, well, two hours is too long to, and that's fine. I understand that. But just get the course and take a look at some of those pictures. Once you begin to see those pictures where it's very obvious, we have pictures of uh, cells, I mean, um, uh, arteries where there's plaque, where there's no plaque. We have pictures of arteries where there's plaque, but no inflammation. And then pictures of arteries where there's plaque in this congregation of these uh, immune cells. We also have pictures where you have plaque, the immune cells, and the uh, enzymes that they're releasing. So once you get a picture of that, you really don't forget what cardiovascular inflammation is. Now, um, continuing with the slides, uh, this is basically the conclusion of this article. Multiple studies have found reduction of CRP regardless of LDL. The benefits of cardiovascular disease exceeds the risk of insulin resistance because that's a, re a reality as well. Uh, statins can increase insulin resistance, but especially on high doses. That's the key thing. This is a dose-dependent effect. Pitavastatin, uh, Livalo, Cipitamac has shown reduction of inflammation on mice with chronic renal disease. And there's differences within each type of statins. 
being pitabastatin and rosubastatin, the, the ones that have a higher impact on inflammation than the other ones. So that second bullet is a big deal. A lot of people talk about um, it really doesn't make sense in terms of benefits risk ratio. And that is if you have uh, cardiovascular disease, why do you take something that may make the number one cause insulin resistance worse? There's a couple of points about that. Again, we don't recommend statins if you don't have plaque already. Number two, we don't recommend high-dose statins in over 95, uh, maybe 98% of cases. It's rare that we, uh, it's, it's actually more than 99% of cases because we've got two or three out of several hundred uh, patients on that. So the bottom line is we don't recommend statins either for your typical person with uh, elevated LDL and no plaque. We just don't recommend it. We don't think it meets the benefit risk ratio. On the other hand, if you already have that level of increased risk at that point, you're talking about low dose statin, which doesn't drive this, uh, this insulin resistance risk and yet decrease of the cardiovascular inflammatory process. So I think I better be quiet. I'm starting to trip over my words again. <laughs> no, but, but the point stands. And, and I think one of the critical points is you just mentioned the last part of this bullet, primary prevention versus secondary prevention. So primary pre prevention is when you recommend a medication based on age. Or some, specific, or some specific risk factor that is not specifically the disease. Secondary prevention in our case is when we see plaque, the evidence of plaque, and see how the prevention of cardiovascular events, and this is specific, uh, and specifically in a stroke, uh, it's better achieved when you recommend studying for secondary prevention. That's what we do. We do not recommend that based on age. We don't recommend that based on LDL levels. We recommend that when, when we know for a fact that the patient has cardiovascular disease, meaning plaque, which is a high calcium score or a positive calcium score or a CIMT that is positive as well. So in this meta-analysis, which is the, the, more, the, the, the most efficient way and the more uh, trustworthy source of information because it involves a critical uh, study of, of evidence, 24 studies, including this meta-analysis from China, this involves more than 2 million patients with diabetes. Patients with diabetes under statin treatment show lower risk of cardiovascular events. And as I just mentioned, less risk of ischemic stroke because they are on statin therapy, especially those who take that when there is evidence of cardiovascular disease. I've got to mention something about that last bullet. To me, it's I was surprised when I saw 0.83 versus 0.74, not a huge difference. It's the difference that we would expect, but it's still not a huge difference. And here's the, and I don't believe that it's that small of a difference. I think it's much larger. And here's one of the reasons that I believe that. When you look at this study, correct me if I'm wrong, but they did not, I don't think they controlled for the dosages. No, no, because... Even, even, even being a meta-analysis, uh, they excluded a lot of studies involved, but uh, not so many studies are coherent regarding the doses. So back to our point, 
you get the same decrease in cardiovascular inflammation and therefore decrease in uh, an ischemic stroke. Stroke was the only thing they looked at here, not all cardiovascular events. So even though um, they looked at that, they got the different the direction of difference that we would have predicted. They did not uh, select only um, low uh, low no. dose statins. And in fact, there's no way that they could because so few uh, medical people only use low dose statins. Yeah. Speaking of epidemiology and this kind of epidemiological analysis, we're going to be covering, uh, what is it that we're covering? Is it, and when are we going to be covering it? Uh, over the next week or two, we're going to be looking at um, how something can be uh, adjusted out. I don't know if you've seen that. I sent that to you, I think, yesterday or the day before. And people Probably said, I had. Uh, it, was like, it was like this first thing that we talked about uh, a few minutes ago, uh, men and uh, ED risk, uh, erectile dysfunction risk. It's like if you took out everybody that... So you say, what well, erectile dysfunction, this is, a, again, a, pardon me for changing the subject, but a, we're talking about uh, adjustment out or uh, taking out uh, core relationships and having to understand the epidemiology of what you're looking at. If you, if you take men and look at erectile dysfunction and you said, oh, gosh, it's associated with uh, depression, uh, insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, and you say, okay, I'm going to take out uh, men that have insulin resistance. And then all of a sudden, you may see uh, no association with high blood pressure, no association with uh, the other items, because all of those other items are still very much associated with each other and with insulin resistance. So you have to be very, very careful on how you analyze studies. So back to this last uh, bullet, as I said, we would expect to see uh, a, a lower impact, in other words, closer to one on primary prevention than to secondary prevention. And sure enough, that's what you see. But when you look at that and you say, but that's not that much, I don't think it's worth adding a statin. You forget some key parts on how those studies are done. Be very careful how you uh, how, how you predict, I mean, how you interpret uh, studies. And that's what epidemiology is all about. That, that's something that is called on some, on some of the studies. This is one way to do it. It's called a regression model analysis. And those are the statistical mechanisms on differentiating the impact of different variables uh, with each other and saying, and how, how you can be sure that this, it is this and not that. Those are those analyses that they do, and not so many people knows how to, how to do that. It 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 requires a person who is very knowledge knowledgeable about statistics and analysis on that side. It's it's exactly right. There's a yeah. few statistical methods. Analysis of variance or ANOVA was one of the statistical methods that was available long before you had the computing power, which uh, you see with regression and multiple regression. We want, we're getting a little bit too geeky here. It's probably time to 
give us the transition and we'll take Q&A. We got a lot of questions. I hope if you want yours answered, you uh, either got it in early or you, uh, as Jesus would say, or you gave us a super chat donation. Or became a YouTube member. Or uh, became a member, yeah. If if I may, I'm gonna take control over that today, and we have because we have we have some questions from from people who are members, and I want to honor my my work. So, hard looking for name just donated ten dollars as a super chat rate stream. Thank you for following up. Thank you for staying here. We have a big audience today, so we appreciate that. And as you know, we have people. I'm I'm in Mexico right now. I have. We have people on the Philippines working. We have a lot of people working on the practice. And those $10, believe me, go a long way on on achieving our goals and Dr. Brewer's vision and life purpose of sharing this information to the world and saving lives with that. Thank Black you, Tango. Dr. Vega, and I will let you, you know, you don't seem to be, but the deep inside of that nice, amicable personality, there's a control freak looking for lurking around looking to get out so <laughs> control i don't think I, I i don't think i will be i would have been able to finish med school without that so <laughs> uh very I, I just, very true Black med school is not so much for the intelligent as it is for the hard-headed for the stubborn yeah for the stubborn exactly right that's right so uh black tengu if you see a black tengu has a couple of uh I, I believe those are uh, Chinese or Japanese uh, letters right there. But not, next to that, there's an icon. That icon means that he is a YouTube member. So we appreciate that. Remember, you can just click on the join button next to the subscribe button and you become a member. And that way, we're going to see your questions first and address those first. So Black Tengu asks, so as I understand it, Wheat generates the deadliest small LDL particles. Does that mean wheat should be cut out of the diet 100%? Or can we cheat and sneakily have a sandwich once a week? Uh, I'm, I'm going to address this first. I will have a sandwich once a week. I mean, that's not an issue. And it's not like wheat means LDL means high risk. Is Wheat has carbs. Carbs means inflammation. Inflammation means cardiovascular risk. And, and we do recommend less than 100 carbs a day. There are differences between glycemic and non-glycemic carbs, of course. And we're not saying if you eat a sandwich once a week, you're going to have a heart attack. But the more carbs you eat, the more inflammation you get, the more risk of a stroke or heart attack you will have. Thoughts? Are you, are you pausing, waiting for me to comment? Yeah. <laughs> you see, I went on mute because I had a more in the back, but it, he's mowed away now. Uh, it's a great question. I have two comments. Uh, can't resist making them. Number one, I would agree that it's not the, uh, I'm not so worried about, you know, wheat has some issues like gluten and gliadins, which I'm not going to touch on right now, but those are real. They are associated with leaky gut and leaky gut is real. Um, they've analyzed uh, those things and uh, they have the full uh, genetic uh, code for those, the amino acid code. And um, it actually is associated with something that is also very much important to us, the ability to clean up the oxidative process. Are you, are you still able to hear me? Yes. Okay. Let me know if you can't, and then I'll go back on mute. 
But as you said, it's really more the carbs problem. And I'm more concerned about wheat products, grain products, than I am sugars. Can you still hear me? Yes. The second thing I would say is, as you know, you've been trained for occupational medicine as well. And as part of that, you have to be a toxicologist. The bottom line is the dose is in the poison is in the dose, not not so much otherwise. So, you know, I I have a lot of people that cheat and have a sandwich cheat. It's not that much of a cheat. It's a question of how many carbs are you getting on a regular basis? I'll go back on mute. This is wearing me out over here. Definitely. And um, well, that's that's the short answer. Black Tengu. Black Tengu again. If we are secondary with black, I, I, I won't stop too much on that. Yes, we consider secondary prevention when we do find evidence of cardiovascular black on a positive CAMT or a positive calcium score or even a CT angiogram can show some black. Uh, we can later on go into the discussion about the differences between soft black and hard black. But yes, secondary prevention is when you have cardiovascular plaque. Jay Pitard, can you post or cite links to studies that indicate benefits of fasting, whether intermittent or longer term? Yes, uh, we have a video on intermittent fasting done right. That's a live show a, a couple of months back. If you go to the, the description of the videos, you will see multiple links there to evidence. So you can go ahead and take a look at those. So it's a really interesting topic. And if you haven't seen that, Go ahead and take a look at it. So, Jesus, I am guessing that little emblem is the one that you're saying that means that Jay Petard, for example, is a YouTube member. Yes. And that's why you're covering his question first. Yes. Good for you. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not being a tyrant. I'm just being trying to be loyal to what I said. Uh, uh, because we have we have that and pecuniary uh, and loyal to our members. The folks <laughs> that are loyal. Yeah, and I, we have that up. That, that they say, hey, Dr. Brewer never gets to my question. Well, we're, we're trying to find a way to address like some some. This is we're trying. <laughs> so, and, J, J, <laughs> me, again. Yeah, go ahead. Let me just make a comment, and uh, we say loyal to us. Uh, we're not lining our pockets here, folks. We're uh, the the all of the revenue plus a whole bunch of the revenue I make working, actually seeing patients, goes to to pay the expenses for the channel. It's it's not cheap, but again, it's saving lives. So as Jesus said, we covered this a while back. Everybody, it's healthy for people to have a life purpose. My purpose in life is to help save lives. And that's what this does. These memberships help save lives and these uh, any contribution that, like a, a super chat. So thank you very much, Jay, for what you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, well, a perk, another motivation to, to, to join. Uh, Jay Pitar, does FH mean familial hyperlipidemia? It's familial hypercholesterolemia, but it's basically yes. the same thing. It's just just another wording, but it's the same thing. And I think I saw another <clears> one. I think we're gonna we're gonna finish with Black Tengu and Jay Pitar's questions, and then we move on. Could I clarify uh, on that last question for a second? Sure. So lipid means, uh, in most cases, it means either cholesterol or triglyceride uh, triglycerides. Both of those are waxes or fats or oils. And you have genetic versions of both of those. Genetic hypertriglyceridemia, genetic uh, 
familial hypercholesterolemia. And both of those would be uh, included in the larger category of familial hyperlipidemia. Great question. Black Tengu, will a larger dose greater than five milligrams of cholesterol provide, provide greater protection from inflammation? What do you think, Doc? Uh, the evidence has not indicated that. So, and, and it so, will provide more side effects, definitely. Yeah, but it will provide more side effects. Exactly right. All right. And I think we have one more. Jay Petard, when you rely on regression analysis, you cannot determine causality, only correlation association. Um, yes, I think that's truth, but the causality comes more with the method that you're using to study rather than the uh, statistical analysis. So if you have a good <laughs> method of research, you're going to get more to causality. What's the thing with that? The more, the more closer you get to causality studies, the more unethical they become. So that's hard to achieve. So we should have known that once I got, can you hear this bird? Now we got a big bird here. Yeah. Anyway, so I should have known that once I started getting geeky on epidemiology, we'd start getting some geeks responding back. Causality is a huge, huge issue. And one of the biggest examples of conundrums and debates on causality um, has to do with gum disease and heart disease and the association and what's causal. So Jay is exactly right. A relationship, a correlation, an association is not at all the same as causality. Now, let me go back to this example of gum disease and heart disease. If you if you go back, there are pictures, and I've got them in one of my slides, pictures back in the 60s that were of billboards that were put up by the CDC saying, if you have gum disease, get your heart checked. We've known this for, gosh, close to 100 years, that people that had gum disease have uh, are much more likely to have heart disease. And if you look at Brad Bale and Amy Deneen in the Bale-Deneen community, they really play to this. A huge portion of the Bale-Deneen community is dentists and more power to them. Dentists have a bigger role than just cosmetics and some of those things. They, dentists can be life-saving, both in terms of sleep apnea and in terms of this issue, in terms of helping patients become aware and decrease their cardiovascular risk. However, there is, there's very little evidence. My friends, Brad and Amy and David, uh, I can't remember David's last, I'm blanking on David's last name. David is a, is a world-class uh, laboratory scientist uh, from Vanderbilt that worked with Brad and Amy to actually demonstrate some causality between gum disease and heart attack and stroke. But to me, all of that focus on trying to prove that gum disease causes it totally ignores the bigger issue from causality. And thank you, Jay, for bringing this up because it allows me to go into another rant, something I'm very emotional about. Yeah. The num what's the number one cause of gum disease? 
just ask two thirds of dentists, at least a third of dentists don't know, but all of them should know insulin resistance and diabetes. Uh, wait a minute. So what's the number one cause of cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance and diabetes. So if, if gum disease is A, heart disease is B, cardiovascular disease is B, it's not A causes B. That's the, I mean, there's a little of that. There's no question. But the bigger issue is C, insulin resistance causes both A and B. And that C is insulin resistance. It causes heart attacks, strokes, cardiovascular disease. It also causes gum disease. And unfortunately, I don't think the Baldenin community emphasizes that nearly enough. I don't think the rest of the communities emphasize it enough. At least they do better at understanding the importance than, again, 98% of docs out there. Yeah. I'll see gum disease as erectile dysfunction on that side. Like, it's a sign of a root cause. It's a canary in the coal mine. (laughs) <laughs> now, now with the reference on the bird that you have just, just behind <laughs> you. Uh, and a shout out to Bill Kearney. Uh, I'm glad that my persistence on you becoming a YouTube member has uh, turned some fruits. Uh, so thank you so much, Bill Kearney, for becoming a YouTube member. We appreciate that. Uh, let's go back then to the ones who started early and send their questions first. So Tom D., Check out the new Amsterdam Pharma Development CETP inhibitor Obicetropib. Obicetropib. Yeah, looks very promising after multiple CETP inhibitor drug failures. And I see that you answer right here. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So, um, again, as we said, sorry about the bird wanting to get into the show now, but it, you know, it maybe provides a little background color. So uh, he brought up the CETPs. For those of you who are not familiar with it, that stands for cholesterol ester transport protein. The CETP inhibitors are all based on this assumption that uh, LDL is is the bad actor. It causes cardiovascular disease. HDL, or quote, good cholesterol, is the good actor. It's saving us from cardiovascular disease. And so here's what they did. They discovered that if you inhibit CETP, you would decrease the uh, transport of cholesterol from HDL to LDL. Well, those of us uh, that think that hmm, maybe these aren't the actors, maybe these aren't the arsons in the in the fire department, maybe they're just bioindicators, maybe they're the canary in the coal mine. Well, uh, if if you look at the canary in the coal mine bioindicator uh, model, think about it this way. If you're back in those old days where they used canaries in a coal mine to tell you the the miners, hey, there's gas in here and it just killed the canary. Well, that's analogous to going and getting a bunch more canaries and putting more canaries in the coal mine. No matter how many canaries you put in the coal mine, it's not going to get rid of the gas. It's not going to save the miners. So I'm personally very skeptical 
about this assumption that CETP inhibitors are actually going to become such a big deal. But we will see. Really good. Uh, I don't have I don't have nothing nothing else to add to that. Um, Elizabeth Pan just became a YouTube member. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And I I Thank believe you. I believe I saw a question from Elizabeth, so I'm gonna address that right now. Uh, Elizabeth Don Layman, a PhD from the University of Illinois, specializing in protein, recommends that we get enough of each essential amino acid. What are the requirements for each essential amino acid? Well, that's that's a question to, for us to go on on Google and search for a good source to that because there are multiple essential amino acids and an essential amino acid is something that uh, your body is not producing that you need to get on your diet. And I'm pretty sure there are recommendations, specific recommendations for each of one of them, but I, I, that's that's information that I know I don't have on hand. I'm sorry about that. Anything that you want to mention well, about that, Dr. <coughs> Excuse me. I appreciate you bringing that up, Elizabeth. One of the things that we're acknowledging, and it's a reflection of me, I get very theoretical and I wear a lot of people out with my just being theoretical. Uh, we don't have enough uh, practical content, um, stuff you can use. So we're starting to generate a list of listicles and other practical information that we can provide in terms of content. So while Jesus was talking, I'm starting a a, uh, an email to remind him that, yeah, we, let's take a look at essential amino acids. Thank you again, Elizabeth. And talking about things that we didn't remember, this is off topic with the question, but goes in hand with the topic. And you mentioned that um, before we started the streaming to address that. Coming back a little bit to statins, heat is measured, which, uh, which are on some of the measurements that Medicare requires <laughs> to um, evaluate the effectiveness and quality of healthcare require that a person that needs a statins it's on statins so that's the other thing and this is something that you need to consider when you see a primary provider if medicare says that they need a statins with ldl of 70 or above they're gonna advise you to be on statins because they want to also comply with medicare standards that's just a caveat that we needed to address uh B. Bradford one. Good morning. Most want to stay on low dose statins for the rest of your life if you follow a low carb diet and all other essential criteria for a healthy lifestyle. If you are over sixty, no access to CIMT. Well, that's that's really a challenge. We we don't like to say that someone who started on statins is going to be all 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 his, um, their life on statins. Uh, some people require statin therapy for a longer period of time than others. And it's based on personal risk, the effectiveness of lifestyle. And getting a quality CIMT is challenging in some states. We do know that. Um, sometimes getting at least a calcium score is going to provide a more clear picture if you really need to start statins or not. And we have seen patients that after a healthy lifestyle and other components might be out of a statins. Uh, but I think it's uh, it is likely that some people who are doing the right thing might be on a statin for a long time. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, part of the issue is as long as you've got plaque. You didn't feel it when you formed plaque. You're not going to feel it if you start forming plaque again. Uh, but again, I, I've probably, we, we've talked 
too much about statins today. I think one of the things that we have not brought up, I, I you, you come on YouTube, you got to have a thick skin, especially if you talk about statins. Um, the bottom line is there are times when over half of my patients coming in from the channel were, were self-declared, self-acknowledged statin haters. They just did not want to take a statin. The bottom line is this. A statin is a very minimal part of a treatment. You cannot out-prescribe a lifestyle. And in terms of lifestyles, you can't out-supplement. You can't out-run a diet. So the biggest thing for all of us really is our lifestyle. And the biggest thing in lifestyle is our diet. What we do in this practice is basically, it's not the doctor telling you what you should do. It's the doctor interpreting what your body is doing. Your metabolism doesn't care whether your feelings are hurt or whether you're frustrated or whether you're not getting better or uh, whether you're doing great. Your metabolism is what it is. And we end up showing you things that your metabolism is doing. If you go back to those five patterns of uh, insulin resistance or, or insulin resistance test results that we talked about today from the, uh, uh, the Kraft Insulin Survey, that's basically what we do in terms of our practice. We can give you suggestions, but what you do is your, is your decision. You just use us as a consultant, and we obviously... We're licensed in all 50 states. We can provide prescriptions for you, but you're the executive. We give you the information. You make your choices. And statins are a very, very small part of an appropriate uh, preventive program for cardiovascular disease. Elizabeth Pan, thank you so much for answering my question. Thank you so much for becoming a YouTube member. It goes a long way. D. Dutton, for a senior citizen, what range of uh, urinary albumin creatinine in radio indicates a healthy endothelial function. Thanks. The lesser, the better, right? The lesser, the better. But there's that's a significant question. I appreciate you asking it. It came on late enough. I was trying to write the answer, but then the show started and, you know, things happen. I'm, you start trying to juggle when you're uh, doing what Jesus and I do, trying to host these meetings. So the bottom line is <clears throat> uh, microalbumin-creatinine ratio. That's what you're asking about. That is basically what uh, other people might call microalbuminuria, micro, microscopic amounts, albumin, that protein. We're not worried about losing that protein because we make plenty of it. We're worried about having it in the urine urea, microalbuminuria, or microproteinuria, because albumin is a protein. It's the most common protein. So we're worried about it being in the urine because that is, as D. Dutton is saying in her question, or his question, uh, it's showing whether or not our, our endothelium, the lining of our artery wall, which is critical to this process in cardiovascular health, is it healthy? Because if it's letting protein through, it's also going to be letting small dense LDL through. And that is what forms plaque. So there is a significant difference. If you look at the microalbumin creatinine ratio, normal values, 30, that's what the lab will tell you. Mm, if you're waiting for that, that is not what we're talking about. 
that is for full-blown kidney disease. And by far, the most common cause of generic kidney disease, the most common cause of uh, having to go on dialysis, the most common cause of death from kidney disease, and the most common cause of an increased microalbumin creatinine ratio is what? Insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes. For men, the number is different than it is for women. For men, it's five or less. For women, it's about 15 or less. And part of that's associated with, for women, it's just harder to get a complete clean catch on the urine. Great question, Dutton. Thank you. Thank you. Bart Robinson, good morning. Looking forward to this topic. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Prabhus Lapnik. It is so recommendable that you do this for us, Doc. Uh, Pennsylvania sends you thanks. Thank you so much. Tree Lady, wondering about recent studies of high LDL association with tendon problems. Recent uh, CIC 0.51 at age 69 has me finally considering low dose statins, low triglycerides, high LDL. That's an interesting question. I, I haven't seen association with high LDLs and tendon problems. Have you? Yes, you do see it with uh, hyperlipidemias overall, especially with the um, the genetic hyperlipidemias. And those are not, that information's not new at all. We've known, gosh, I remember, this is how old this is. Uh, I had a girlfriend in medical school. <laughs> so we're talking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're talking Neanderthal period. Uh, no, we're talking, uh, what, 1981, 19, okay. late 70s, uh, that had xanthalasma. You, have you, you remember the term? Yeah, xanthalasma. Yeah. She had some under her eyes. She had some in her tendons. And those are little uh, balls of cholesterol associated with hypercholesterolemia. So that's not that's not new. There may be some new information out about it, but I'm not aware of any new developments in that space. And, really and I would say, yeah, go ahead. You really don't want to be one of those patients. Those patients have extremely high levels. It's not the routine hypercholesterolemia that we're talking about. And, and probably on those cases, yes, other forms of drugs, those that are, that are focused on decreasing LDL levels may help. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, I just haven't seen so much patients with tendon problems because of high LDL. And I have seen few patients with, with that issue on the skin. You know what? I'm glad we got that recorded. It's at timestamp 135. Jesus actually said, yes, you're right. <laughs> I, I've seen, I said that like uh, <laughs> more than I can remember now. Um, um. David Bacon, become a YouTube member. Thank you so much, David. I see a white coat right there, so it's good to see. If, if you're in the healthcare field, we appreciate that. Uh, and even if well. you're not in the healthcare field, yeah, I thought course. it was a light blue shirt, but either way, we appreciate it. <laughs> Bill Kearney, the difference between fluffy and dense allele is only five nanometers, so why is fluffy pattern A less atherogenic than dense pattern B? Because the fluffy, those five nanometers make the difference between that LDL staying within the blood flow or going be, be below the inner of the artery wall. 
that's the difference. That's that uh, that small is uh, that's as small as it, as it is between the cells layers. And remember that it's, it's the issue is not LDL being there. The issue is the inflammation that is causing the LDL to move. <laughs> Here's another potential mechanism for it, Bill. It's a it's a great point. And the way they uh, the way they came up with that was just looking at the data again. There's at least two different theories for the mechanism. Jesus just pointed out one that's probably got credibility to it, or it clearly has credibility. Um, here's another one. If you go back to some of our videos on the triglyceride over HDL ratio, you might remember that people that have a disrupted or poor carb metabolism, as demonstrated on the video earlier today, like two through five, pattern uh, craft patterns two through five. Here's what happens. The uh, large fluffy particles that when they're carrying cholesterol, that cholesterol gets replaced with fatty acids. Now, a fatty acid laden particle, when it passes through the liver, it gets metabolized, unlike the cholesterol laden particle. So what happens then is if you get a, a disrupted carb metabolism, and as Black Tangu mentioned, you eat a whole lot of carbs, mostly in uh, uh, grain products, then you're greatly increasing the number of large fluffy particles, whether it's HDL or LDL, large, fluffy, healthy particles. You're, you're getting that replacement with fatty acids for the cholesterol, and so that's getting chewed up. So that may actually be the issue, that this uh, B pattern is more of a reflection of a disrupted carb metabolism than anything else. Again, the evidence is not clear on which uh, mechanism it is, but the evidence is clear that it's a risk pattern. And, and there, remember, there are, when, talk, when talking about inflammation, there are different um, communication mechanisms. And there are differences between a fluffy LDL particle and a small dense LDL particle and the way that they get traction, for so to say, or interaction with other inflammatory mechanisms is different between each other. Um, should the main objective to be reduced particles, APOB, HFLC, um, not sure what, 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 what he means by LF, LFHAC. Low, low fat, high carb, or high fat, mm, low carb. Okay. Raise fat, raise APOB, raise carbs, lower APOB, but raise glucose. Uh, if, if you're going and doing treatment, trying to reach optimal levels, you're going to wear out. Optimal levels of optimal APOB and all those markers are just that, markers. They're telling you progress on, on part, but you don't have to go trying to chase that all those levels are in the optimal state all the time. If you see change on those, you are going to see progress and the clinical aspect and developing plaque or not, are I think are, those are more important. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that you have an opinion on that, Dr. Brewer. I do. And it, do you mind if I actually click on one of these questions? Sure. It's related to my, 
It's from I, like, I, I will, I will, uh, how do you say that? I will, um, acquiesce or allow. Yeah. Or... I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow you, uh, allow, allow you to do that <laughs> allow um, <me>. hesitantly. <laughs> I, I get it. So, um, this is related. It's like Fred Meniz. I was diagnosed with peripheral artery disease and niacin can reduce the inflammation soft plaque. Question mark. So again, it gets to this point where I mentioned it before. People say, well, I've got plaque. Can I take niacin and that's going to fix it? Or can I take another supplement and that's going to fix it? Or can I put a stent in and that's going to fix it? Or can I take a statin and that's going to fix it? Let me, you know, pardon me. And I know I sound like a scratch record, but it's true. And it, you know, the questions keep coming up. The answer doesn't change. My, my kids and, and my wife used to get so mad at me because they'd get emotional about a question and they'd ask it. And I'd say, my answer just hasn't changed. I'm sorry. And my answer hasn't changed here. You can take supplements, you can take, you can exercise, you can get a stent, you can get a statin, you can do all of these things. But it's like, I don't, I think it was Mark Twain who, or maybe it was, it was some famous person uh, is credited. Both I've seen Mark Twain credited and I've seen Albert Einstein credited with saying, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. And that's what we keep saying over and over again. Most of us that get into this cardiovascular problem, as in 95, 80 to 95%, have a problem. It starts hitting us in our 50s or later, sometimes as early as the 40s. And when you look at it, it's because we're losing our ability to metabolize carbs. Aging, genetics is important. Uh, other risk, factor, uh, risk factors are important. Obesity is important, but nothing is as, as important a risk factor as aging. Genetics, obesity, aging is the most important. And aging, we haven't figured out yet how to stop insulin resistance, but we do know there are ways to improve it. As you mentioned, Fred, for some people, niacin helps. For some people, um, niacin actually is, well, we'll get back to supplements. For some people, supplements help. For some people, um, better sleep helps. Decreased uh, um, stress. But at the end of the day, go back to step one. Stop digging the hole the very first thing to do is evaluate whether or not you have insulin resistance. If statins are, I mean, if, if uh, carbs are a poison for you because of combination of obesity, genetics, age, and mostly age, stop eating poisons. Then yes, we can talk about statins. We can talk about exercise. We can talk about um, supplements. We can talk about things like that. So pardon me for that rant, if that sounded like too much of a rant, but, you know, we're getting the same question. Will, will a supplement pull me out of my problem? No, not as long as you're digging yourself, continuing to dig yourself into it. Okay, I'll give control back to you now. <laughs> I don't have a couple of super chats. Thank you so much. The truth. So 
$5 super chat. Thank you so much. So we know that sugar oxidizes LDL calcium plaque along with the inflammation in the arteries giving place for the plaque to go into. Um, I will agree partially on that because, yeah, sugar <laughs> has a place on inflammation. Insulin resistance itself, not necessarily related or not to sugar, has a, pla has a place. But I think this just giving the whole responsibility to oxidize LDL for plaque formation is, is, is just us focusing on one component of this. And there is a way bigger complex process on inflammation that involves more than just oxidized LDL. So sugar is related to that, but it's more the oxidation and inflammation that promotes oxidized LDL. And I see oxidized LDL as a marker, not as a responsible itself. Want to add something to that comment, Doc? No. And he gave us another $5 super chat. Thank you so much. So if we stop eating sugar, all the above goes away. It seems sugar is the cause of most of our illnesses. For most people, it is. For most people, the high amounts of carbohydrates are mostly related to insulin resistance and uh, oxidation and inflammation. But we, we do have some patients that are really strict on their diet, really strict on their um, intake and exercise. And they're still strugglesome. And that's where genetics and aging play a major role on those situations. Can I do one here? <laughs> uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm trying to go ahead. And that's something that you have to address on this question. And, and sometimes I use them indifferently. So okay. that's on me. So this is a really good topic. Uh, T. Phillips is saying sugar is not glucose. Most table sugar is sucrose. That's a very good point. And uh, guess what? Sucrose has more of a glycemic value of 50. By the way, uh, white, white bread has a glycemic value of about 77. And whole grain bread, which is supposed to be healthy for you, has a, has a glycemic value in about 67. So it's higher than table sugar. So there's a couple of points about that. If once you begin to discover these things about glycemic value, glyce meaning glucose, emic meaning in the blood, uh, it becomes a very, very important practical issue. So there's a couple of practical issues that we'll be covering uh, soon in this area. One is some of these surprises about glycemic value and grain products and whole grains. Another one is sugars. Fructose is very different from sucrose, which is very different from glucose. Um, so there's a lot there that T. Phillips just brought up. And again, very, very practical information. People that look at the glycemic value alone might think, well, fructose is not that bad. Or even sugar, table sugar is not that bad. Mm. Uh, be, be careful. Beware. And we'll, we'll be covering some content later, which helps out in that area. And if you go, you'll go to see the book from David Perlmutter, Drop Acid, about the influence of fructose on uric acid and cardiovascular risk. Uh, you realize fruits are not as healthy as you might, as you might think. Um, quick question, quick comment. Those are going to be really, really quick and we can move on. Uh, Bill Curry, the balance is challenging, talking about lipoproteins and all those markers. Yes, that's difficult. And it's different for, every, for everybody. David Bacon, nope, not in healthcare. 
Sorry about that. I need my glasses on. Bill Courtney, anything less than 70 nanometers can get through. Some say that even something less than 200 nanometers can get through. But again, it depends on the inflammation status. The more inflamed you are, the more bigger the bigger the particle can go into there. But density is different than just size. So it's the interaction with the liquid, liquid itself and the communication and different markers of communication that they have on the lipoprotein itself. So it's, it's a complex issue. It's more than just size. Size matters, but it's not the only thing, of course, as a lot of things in life. David Bacon, that photo was 25 pounds ago. Yay to low carb. So that's really good. So congrats on, on, on losing weight. Uh, that's awesome. And uh, where we were at, right? Well, I'm going to give a, a housekeeping warning. I need to go to the beach. This has been <laughs> fun, but I would like here. to go to the beach. Do you mind? We can answer this last one and wrap it up. Sounds good. Uh, Bobby Ocampo, we, 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 we cannot leave Bobby Ocampo out of this. He, he is one of those uh, viewers that uh, we thank you. Uh, he also gives, sends his questions really early on. I think now he's going to think about get, becoming a member. What is your opinion on near-infrared light from the sun and from artificial lightning and cardiovascular inflammation? Have you seen something about that? I have, and it really didn't differentiate very well. But I will tell you this. It brings up uh, the point about these uh, infrared saunas. And if you look at them, the reality is there's pretty good evidence um, that the infrared saunas do help. Uh, if I weren't such a cheap person, I've thought about it for decades. I'd love to have one of those infrared saunas in my house. And I'm just too darn cheap. So I've never done it. Uh, I'm a big fan. And I think there is something that's called like therapy uh, that has been seen to help uh, even with aging. But I see some evidence of infrared light, and I think it's variations between the type of light that you're talking about. But some type of lighting, especially artificial lighting, has been uh, associated with increased sympathetic nervous activity, meaning more hormones that increase blood pressure and can be related to heart disease. So there's some research on that, especially on mice, but I, I think we have to differentiate the type of artificial, artificial lighting we're talking about. And natural lighting, of course, helps. It can, it can help you to increase your levels of vitamin D. But as we have discussed in the past, uh, sometimes natural lighting is not enough to get you to optimal vitamin D, vitamin D levels. I know we said one more, but can I cover one last one? <laughs> you're the boss. You're, 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 you're making that crystal clear. <laughs> so Mark Bingham says, no, not all carbs are the same. White bread's different than sweet potatoes. And it is true. There's a thing called glycemic index. We talked about it a few minutes ago. One of the things that's confusing is the reading food labels. Um, the FDA requires... Um, fiber to be labeled as carbs. And it is technically a carb, but fiber doesn't increase your blood sugar. In fact, fiber in most cases is a good, is a good thing to have. So that's another thing that we ought to talk about sometime when we get a little bit uh, 
a little bit deeper into glycemic value. We do have, we do have that topic on Q. I'm going to yeah. try to make a short slide for that uh, glycemic versus non-glycemic carbs. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the show today. Me too. Uh, I, I, it's clear that you enjoy more the beach than the show, but that's okay. <laughs> Gotta have priorities. No, enjoy, enjoy your vacations. Uh, you, you definitely uh, deserve them. Thank, Thank you, so Jesus. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.